First John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 11 uh, to 20, but um, I have to answer one question or one comment that was, that was made after last Sunday morning, which was when I, I, we looked at the bit before, which for those maybe of you who don't know um, the Bible or you're, you're, you're new here as well, John is writing to Christians, he's writing to Christians who are faced with particular difficulty and trouble and temptations to turn away from the Christian faith. And he's talking to them about some of the, the basics of the faith. And in chapter 3, he's been talking about what a great thing it is to be a child of God. And he's also uh, been talking about sin. And we saw last week that once you become a Christian, it's not that you become sinless, but that it is you have a, a desire to turn away from sin. And we looked at what sin was. And in the course of that last week, I said something like, in the light of the coming general election, our politicians needed to realize that the big problem was sin. And somebody afterwards was just talking and say, well, that just sounds like a religious thing to say. And of course you would say that, wouldn't you, because you're a Presbyterian minister. And they don't, whoever said that didn't know their history because they could have said, especially because you're a free church minister, uh, you're always going on about sin. And it wouldn't really be a popular thing for a, a politician to mention. So I was asked simply, how does that work? And let me explain it in this way. Take, for example, let's go back to the Greek crisis. And I mentioned our friends Georgias and Argirius. The violence that goes on there, that is sinful. And if people followed Christ, they wouldn't use such violence. But also, the cause of the financial crisis in Greece is also sinful. I read, to my astonishment this week, that 30 billion euros a year it goes out of the Greek economy because of tax evasion. That would solve the basis of their financial problems almost straight away. 30 billion from tax evasion and fraud. You almost understand why people get so violent and so upset about things. And again, that's sin. Now, I do honestly believe that if people followed Christ, then prisons would be emptied, there'd be less need for police, the welfare state would work a whole lot better. Um, I, I'd be prepared to argue, for those of you who know your, your, your politics and your history, that the beverage report after the Second World War was predicated upon a, uh, the notion of a Christian society where people were honest and so on, and that without that, the welfare state will collapse. You wouldn't have as many um, tax cons or bailing out billionaire bankers and, and all the rest of it. So I think sin is a huge, huge issue that's involved there. But we're going to look at First um, John chapter 3, verses 11 to 20, because it doesn't just say, look, here's the problem, sin. It's now saying what the solution is and how you deal with it. It's not just our sin is atoned for, but there's a different way to live. And... What John sets before us is a, is a choice, and it's a choice between the way of Cain, and we'll see what that is, or the way of Christ, and we'll also see what that is. So let's read 1 John 3, verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 
Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Lord, this is your word, and we thank you for it. And we pray that you would speak to us through our minds to our hearts, that our wills may obey. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are of a little bit older vintage, and I don't include myself in this category, uh, I was only just born when the Beatles had their first uh, hit song, but uh, the Beatles did sing, All You Need Is Love, and that's now just treated with so much cynicism. I actually think that, in a sense, John is saying the same thing. If you want to come up to a slightly more contemporary, all you need is love has become the black-eyed peas. Where is the love? It's just people, you, it's not there, is it? I mean, that whole feeling, oh, you can feel the love is just such a, it's just a, such a cynical, we live in such a cynical world. Well, we're going to look at why love is so important and how it's the kind of antidote to the disease and the problem of sin. How, when you become a Christian, it, you, you change. I think, going back to this idea in a little bit of the problem, why is it that a couple can promise to love one another until death do them part and yet it goes so wrong? Why is it that you can begin a friendship but it can turn sour? Your best friend can sometimes turn out to be your worst enemy. Or you can be in a church and you can love the people and yet end up almost hating them. I think it's because we have the wrong idea of love and because love cannot flourish in an atmosphere of always taking but never giving. And that's what John is talking about here. He's saying we are supposed to love. That's one of the big tests of being a Christian. But how would you know if you love? And he defines love in this way, which is primarily about giving. Let me put this a slight other way. I've actually read somebody and I heard somebody say this. I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. There is a, a view that, well, we're really into love and we're really into caring for people and we're really into this, but when it comes down to the actual people who are around us, the people we actually meet, the flesh and blood that we, we see and, uh, and we talk to and we touch and so on, it's sometimes a lot easier to be in love with the idea of love than it is actually to love. Now, what John is saying in this passage is that once you become a Christian, you come into a relationship with a loving God, and in effect, that rubs off on you, and you then become a loving person. So what we'll do is we'll go through this passage, and we'll look that he does the negative first, what we call the way of Cain, or um, the lack of love, and what that leads to. And the first is, he's, straight away, he's pretty strong. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. 
Love, the lack of love leads to murder. It wasn't Abel's offense that upset Cain, if you know that story, but his righteousness that upset his brother. And this is how God warned him right at the beginning. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Here was the problem with Cain. It wasn't that he murdered. It was that he murdered because of the problem within his own heart. His own lack of relationship with God and his own hatred of his brother. It was a kind of moral battle going on within Cain. We could argue that humankind's greatest problem is ignorance, but it is also rebellion. Cain did not become a sinner or a rebel full of hatred because he murdered. He murdered because he was a sinner, rebel, full of hatred. John 8, 44, Jesus says that the devil is the murderer. And we might turn around and just say, well, look, we don't murder. I mean, I don't know all of you. Maybe somebody here has actually murdered somebody or killed somebody. I don't know, but I suspect probably not. And so most of you will say, I don't murder. And I would certainly say that. You know, we live in a kind of society where, in theory, killing is really bad. I went to buy a mousetrap yesterday. I can't believe you can get mousetraps that don't kill mice that capture them so that you can let them loose. And I just went through my head is, where am I going to let them loose? In my neighbors, you know. <laughs> what, what are you going to do with a mice? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. You just, well, okay. And, and it's just the thought people think, well, I can't stand the thought of killing a wee mouse. Well, you know, trapping it and then letting it loose so that it comes back. I'm not very sure how that works. But most people would say, oh, I wouldn't harm a fly. Or I wouldn't harm a mouse. Or uh, I remember somebody who was working on her house. There was a... a a wasp or, or a bee or something, and, and you know, I'm there with the newspaper ready. Oh, no, don't do that, don't do that. Gradually take it gently out and fry, go away to freedom, and so on. It's a different way of looking at things. Most people would say, We don't want to kill. We, of course, we don't want to murder. Murder is such a bad thing. It's such a. But look what Matthew 5 21, 20 to 21 says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. That's just like a term of contempt that was used. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is saying that actually murder is not the beginning of the process. Murder is the end of the process. The process is when you, it starts with contempt of people, when you start despising people, when you start hating people, when you look at people, and actually murder is where you get to the point where you say their life is not worth living. Their life is better if it's gone for me. We get rid of them. And what Jesus is really saying is when we have contempt for somebody, we are guilty of murder. The lack of love or the opposite of love, hatred, leads to murder. And you can, see that, you can see how that works out in so many different ways. It also leads to persecution, particularly of Christians. Now, we hear a lot about hate crime. And I don't think any one of us would want to condone it. If we are Christians, we must not condone hatred of any group of people. 
But it's, it gets very worrying if you have the state starting to determine what is a hate crime and what is not uh, a, a hate crime. Can the state really determine motivation and whether people are hateful? I think one of the things that is, is disturbing me more and more is the extent to which it seems almost permissible to hate Christians and Christian standards. Now that's, um, you know, I'm not paranoid. I know that they're all out to get me. That's, uh, that, it's, it's not that kind of thinking. But it does seem to be moving more and more towards that. I read in The, in the Guardian yesterday uh, an article which was basically blaming uh, a group of Christians for being involved in politics. I just thought, oh, this, it's, it's, getting, it's not nearly as bad as. But it's getting towards a similar situation in Weimar, Germany, where people looked for someone to blame, and it was the Jews. Now, in our culture, we, we should pray about the government, and we should pray... Paul says, so that we can live peaceable lives. Because if, as many people suspect, the economy really does go, then don't think that British people are incredibly civilized and won't do anything. I heard this week that they say, you know, the Greeks throw stones and burn things, and there's a, a, an old-age pensioner in Dorset who wanted to protest about the traffic going past his house. So he went out and he just kept pressing the pedestrian button and caused a four-mile tailback by just, he kept just crossing the road, you know, which I thought was absolutely, what a typically British way of protesting. And we smile and we think, isn't that, you know, the Greeks throw firebombs and we press pedestrian buttons and walk across the road. That, that kind of people, we, we're amused by that and we think that's kind of quirky and that's what we do. But no, if, if the economy goes completely south, then we are, there will be riots and there will be enormous kinds of trouble. And people will look for someone to blame. And whether they blame immigrants, whether they blame Muslims, whether they blame Christians... People will, there's got to be someone else who's going to blame. And here, John says, the world is full of the descendants of Cain. That is, that people do not love the good when they see it. It upsets them and they persecute it. And we can find this genuinely puzzling. When we act from the best of motives, when we love our fellow human beings, when we're not looking out for anything for ourselves, but instead only want to offer the wonderful gift of the gospel, why is the world not thankful? And the answer is that for many people, they hate believers. I, I've seen people, um, John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And I've just seen this in so many ways. I've seen people yell and shout and scream just with hatred. Why? And sometimes it is because of us. Sometimes, it, from, from my point of view, it's because I have been obnoxious or I haven't spoken very well or I haven't reacted, you know, and it's, it, they genuinely just don't like you and you, you take with that. But sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it goes way, way, way beyond that. The vehemence that, that occurs. And you think it's hatred. Why? Because the lack of love leads to hatred. And that takes us on to what else? Verses 14 to 15, it leads to death. We pass from death to life. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Actually, that's one of the great things about the Christian gospel, because in the normal world, things go from life to death. That's what happens. But what we're being told in the Christian gospel is things go from death to life. And there's that tremendous emphasis 
for Christians. The emphasis is we've come out of death and we move into life. Ephesians 2, for example, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's an extraordinary claim that Paul is making. But he's saying, and John says the same thing, they're both saying that unbelievers live in a condition that's called death and that when you, become, when you come to Jesus, you get life. And John is asking, how do you know? How do you know that you've got life? And the answer is, because you love. Can you commit murder and be forgiven? Yes, Paul, for example. But the attitude of hatred and murder is something that is incompatible with Christianity, which is why it is utterly ridiculous when you get Christians who either are convicted of or could be convicted of hate crimes. If you find yourself as a Christian, for example, say with a homosexuality issue, any Christian who hates homosexuals, what you're basically saying is you're not a Christian. You can't hate. We're not to hate. You don't, there's no group of people, even our most vehement and worst enemies, that Christians should hate. We should never be able to be convicted of hate crime. The gospel reverses Genesis 4, the murder of Abel by Cain, as much as it reverses Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, there's the estrangement of human beings from the creation and God. In Genesis 4, there's the bringing in of violence and war and murder. And one of the things that the gospel does is it reverses that. It, it, it changes that around. Now, how you work that out can be very different. Uh, are we saying Christians would never ever be involved in the army and so on? And there's been an honorable tradition of pacifism. My grandfather, for example, belonged to the Christian brethren. He refused to fight even in the Second World War. And instead he um, was, they turned his farm into a prisoner of war camp. So he just looked after the, the, the prisoners. I mean, they, they actually had no guards because none of them wanted to escape. And, uh, it was just, but that was his, he, that was his conviction. He didn't believe he could take up a gun and kill people. Other Christians have thought differently, but whatever, it would mean, it does mean that we can't hate. You can't react in that way. Dostoevsky has a great quote, hell is the suffering of being unable to love. Hell is the suffering of being unable to love. And I suspect that there are many, many people who are in that condition, who are unloved and unlovable and unloving. And that's a death. And Jesus comes in and changes that so that we can love. What then does that mean? What is love? Love is, verse 16, he says it's sacrificial. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's our definition of love. It's because of what Christ did. And this is the astonishing thing. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The, the standard of love for our fellow Christians is the standard of love that Jesus has for us. 
And if you actually just stop and think, I think if you're like me, you're automatically saying, no, 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 that's, that's, I can't do that. That's impossible. Love does not destroy, but it gives. And it gives in this way. I, I, I don't know who this came from, but I picked up this quote. It is a love that gives without counting the cost, without any thought of return, without first weighing up whether or not such love deserved, a love that is entirely without self-interest. 1 Corinthians 13. A love that gives without counting the cost. Doesn't say, I wonder what I'll get back for this, or I wonder if... A love that is entirely without self-interest. You and I, the vast majority of the love that we have is there's a self-interest in it. Now, that, by the way, is the atheist and secularist viewpoint of, of, of how you get love. Because you do something because it benefits you. It's altruism. Christopher Hitchens, when he hears the Christian doctrine of love, and when he hears about forgiving your enemy and so on, he, he says it's obscene. He said it is the most obscene teaching of Christianity. Well, he's right, in one sense. Because this goes absolutely counter to so much human nature. It's God's nature to give. It's God's love to give. And we are to reflect that. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Let me put it another way. There was nothing in us to attract Christ to love us. We were dirty and smelly and ugly and sinful. And it may be actually that you're here and you're saying, well, I'm not yet a Christian. And I don't think I could be because I've done this, because I've done that. Because... You have to understand that the love of Christ comes to the lowest of the low in the deepest pit of the deepest pit. And we as Christians have to reflect that. And that's hard. I'll tell you how hard it is. Walk down the Perth Road tomorrow and you see someone sitting there begging and walk down on a Friday night and you see someone lying in their own vomit, it's really hard not to feel contempt or just to shut your eyes. But we are, in a, in a sense, that is us. And Christ comes down and reaches to us. Now, it's not in a superficial way. It's not just saying, well, if you give money, that's it. It's, it's a love that comes to the unlovable I think it's important, therefore, that we realize that this love can only come from Christ. We can't work it up. We ourselves, as Christians, we don't die for our fellow believers in the same way that Christ died for us. We don't make atonement, but we are to serve and help them. And that's why the second thing is in verse 17. It's practical. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? The Greek has this great expression. It says, we have material possessions, we see our brothers in need, and we shut up our guts, or our entrails. The old um, King James Version spoke about the bowels. And it's, it, it is, actually, that is actually what it's speaking of. The Greeks saw, not the heart, but saw your guts as being the area where compassion was moved and was as generated, and where the emotions were so involved. Now, actually, it's very interesting because when the Greeks spoke in that way, in Greek philosophy, it usually meant anger. But the Christians took that on board and they changed it and they developed it in terms of compassion. So you will get that expression in some old hymns uh, and in the older versions of the Bible, like your bowels of compassion. 
which just doesn't really work in our culture. But I was going to say there's something very moving about it, but that's probably not. <laughs> that, that would be really bad. I just stopped myself in time. Um, but that's the, the idea where those kind of things come in. Right back in Deuteronomy, for example, if there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you uh, do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put to your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and need in your land. How perverse is it that human beings have taken that phrase, which Jesus used, the poor you will always have with you, and they've turned that into a reason not to help the poor. You cannot get a bigger example of twistedness and perverseness than that. Oh, the poor you'll always have with you, so don't try and do anything about it. Jesus says you'll always have the poor with you. That's why you should try and do something about it. It's something that's practical. In the New Testament, you you find that expressed uh, throughout the New Testament, but perhaps particularly in James chapter 2 and at verse 15. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I think a lot of us are what I'd call Mr. Spock Christians with a Vulcan greeting, go well and prosper, you know, live in peace and whatever. I mean, we, we have this, you know, may God bless you. And we write it on the end of cards and we'll say it in church services. And the New Testament says, we're not interested in that. John says, I'm not interested in that. James says, I'm not interested in that. He wants to see what it means. And again, it's like in our culture, we, I mean, we latch on to politicians and have a go at politicians, which is really unfair because the politicians largely only reflect the culture and they're like ourselves. I mean, we go on about politicians cheating. There were many politicians who didn't cheat in terms of their finances. And there are many of those who complain about politicians cheating who are just desperate to do the same and probably do do the same. It's the same in terms of we talk about love and in our society we'll, we'll say yes we need love and we need compassion and we need to share together and our children are taught in school and everyone where is the love in the film Gran Torino you've, if you've seen that film uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time you've got Clint Eastwood who is a plays himself basically uh, an old miserable man who who's living in an an area of town that's been taken over mostly by Vietnamese and Kampuchean refugees. And there's gang warfare and there's a whole racism between the blacks and the Vietnamese and the whites and so on. And in the film, his kids all live out in the suburbs and they're all very politically correct. They would never use racist language. And when he uses it, they go, oh, dad, really, you can't speak like that and so on. But they do nothing. He, on the other hand, uses the most shockingly offensive racist language. Um, He has the most offensive racist stereotypes. And yet, he 
helps and acts to defend his Vietnamese neighbors. Now, you take the two things, the one people who never, uh, I'm not defending racist language, but the one people who would never do anything like that, but they would never do anything. They would never help. And on the other hand, somebody who for all his, his attitudes is there and is living with the people and helps the people. It's practical. C.H. Dodd says this, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. Part of the problem with our culture is we've, we believe that we can give spare change, that that's sufficient. But the Christian attitude of love is you give that which costs you. It costs and it's practical. And you see that in every single thing. You, you help them with the crash, costs you something. You don't want to do it. We don't ask for people to volunteer for the creche because they are just bouncing to, to, to be with children. You help with hospitality in your home. It may be that you want some peace and quiet and you deserve some peace and quiet and so on, but you don't just offer hospitality to people just when you've got plenty of time and plenty of food and you just feel like it. You come to, to give, to help people in need. And you say, well, I can't give anything because I've got no spare change this month. We're not interested in your spare change. It's what costs. And that's what James is saying Christianity does for you. The third thing is, verse 18, it's active and truthful. It's not just that we say, but we do act in truth. And it really does make a practical difference. It's easy to love in words, to express sympathy, to promise, to pray, to encourage. But it's our actions that confirm or deny the truth. James 2.20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? See, we can do things in general. We can talk about loving humanity in general. But it's what we do in particular that counts. You can go on diversity courses that teach you how to be respectful to all people, but it's no use unless you're respectful to the colleague you're working with, the person beside you. And that's why John is talking about, it's in the church, it's our brother and our sister, someone whom we see, someone whom we have a relationship. That's why I subtitled this or entitled it, Real Relationships in the Church. It's easy to love people who are far away from you it's much, much harder to love people who you are with all the time. C.S. Lewis, in a great observation, says this, loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. I love Calvin's summary of this, where he, in summarizing this passage, he says this, no one truly loves unless we show it whenever occasion occurs. In other words, when you get the chance to love, you're showing it's by your nature. As far as we have the means, we're bound to provide help for our brothers and sisters. That's it. We have, Paul talks in Thessalonians about how we work hard so that we can provide for others. We live in a culture which says, if you work hard, you work hard for yourself. And if you're going to provide for others, it's by the government taking the money from you and so on. No, we work hard so that we can provide for others. The necessity of everyone ought to be seen to. It seems almost impossible, but again, that's what we aim for. We want to try and help people. We want to live in a culture where it's not 
every person for themselves. And number four, no act of kindness is of itself pleasing to God unless it's accompanied with love. In other words, you don't just do it. Calvin says our bowels should be opened. (laughs) That's just this whole idea of it should be compassion that motivates you, not guilt, not I have to do this because I'm being compelled to do it by the government or I'm being compelled to do it by the church or whatever, but it's, it's compassion that moves us. Let me summarize all of this. It is easy to be, an idea, to be in love with the idea of love. It's also very easy to denounce the lack of love in others. It's the hardest thing for me about being a Christian and the most attractive thing about Christianity is that we need to love intelligently, practically, sacrificially. We reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And we really need to take this seriously. Not just let it wash by as we go on to something else. John Stott has a great quote, and I'll put it up there for you to finish. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. John doesn't say you love because you love you pass from death to life. He doesn't say go out and love because you can't do it. You and I cannot love like this on our own. But he says because you have passed from death to life, then you love. It's an enormous change that has occurred within you. You know, it's funny, all of them, all the politicians, and I I don't mean to be disparaging, but, you know, when David Cameron says, vote for change, or Nick Clegg says, vote for change, and uh, supposing it ends up being a a conservative liberal government, in four years' time we'll get the Labour Party saying, vote for change. It won't change. Not really. Not, Not at depth where it needs. I quote it often, but Tolstoy's, everyone thinks of changing society, no one thinks of changing themselves. The best way for the world to be changed is for you and I to be changed. We need to pass from death to life so that we love sacrificially. We need to, and, and, and that needs to be something that just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going. I find the hardest teaching in the Bible, people often ask me about difficult passages and so on. I find the hardest teaching in the Bible is, to be, is the teaching in this passage, and similar like it, which says, you love like Jesus. That's the standard. That's the standard. You love like Jesus. And it doesn't even say, you know, there are opt-outs and all the rest. It's just, that's it. That's what happens. You become a Christian. The love of Christ is shed abroad in your hearts, and we are to have that. Now, what that means is that for some of us, Some of you are going to go on a guilt trip and say, well, I don't. I don't love like this. I'm not going to ease your guilt trip. Because I'm going to ask you, say, well, are you a Christian then? Are you really? You know, you've got all the doctrines, you've got everything all lined up. You think that's fine. But are you really holding it all at a distance? Because if you're a Christian, you've given your whole life to Christ. And as you love Christ, then that will help you to love the world. So maybe maybe you do need to become a Christian. But there are those of us who are Christians who recognize, yeah, we do love Jesus, but then we feel we can't love like this. And, and again, I would just simply say, yes, you can. You can love like this. 
That's why you walk close to Christ. That's why when you get a Christian who says, well, I'm a practical Christian, I go out in the streets and help the poor, and and someone else says, well, I'm a spiritual Christian, I come in and pray. No, if you're a spiritual Christian and drawing near to Jesus Christ, then you can't help but love and go out. And if you're going out and helping the poor and you, you aren't drawing near to Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, it ends up being about you, really, and how you feel and how good you are. But it's not about us, it's about him. It's about having the compassion that Christ has. And I think for some of us, we need to wake up to this in terms of our, um, the love that we're to have within the church. We are to have a love that's prepared to go as far as dying for our brothers and sisters. And some of us are struggling to make a cup of tea for them. So we really need to wake up to what is there. But it's just, for me, the, just the great thing in it all is just simply this. This is the love of Christ. It's not something we work up. It's not something we have within ourselves. But it's something that he gives to us. And it's something that we know because he's already done it for us. We love him because he first loved us. And that enables us to love other people. And there isn't a single one of you here for whom that is not true. I am not talking about super saints. You're not all Mother Teresa or whoever. But if you're a Christian, you're Christ's, and that changes everything.